The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. and welcome to the Holding Short Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Matheson. Today we are joined by Piyush Gandhi. Piyush Gandhi is an experienced executive in the field of aviation. He is currently the Vice President, Operations and Business Development for the Presage Group, which is an organization that uses psychological, science-based analytics to understand the behaviors of employees, primarily pilots, in operational workplaces, and provide mitigation strategies that ultimately improve the safety and performance of those organizations. Most recently, he spent two and a half years with Sunwing Airlines in the role of Vice President Flight Operations, along with safety, operational, regulatory, and fiduciary responsibility of more than 30,000 flights in the Boeing 737-800 and 737-MAX-8 per year, he maintained his pilot proficiency flying the line as a 737 captain. Previously, he was the Vice President Flight Operations at Porter Airlines, where he was a founding team member from its inception in early 2006. He contributed to helping build Porter from its humble four aircraft operation to 28 aircraft, operating more than 65,000 flights per year and carrying more than 3 million passengers. Prior to that, Piyush spent 10 years with Bombardier Aerospace as their chief pilot and customer liaison pilot. In addition to his OEM certification and production test pilot duties on the Q400 and Global Express business jet, Piyush spent much of his Bombardier tenure overseas, training pilots, delivering new aircraft, conducting sales and marketing tours, and providing operational support to various airlines and operators globally. Since 2018, Piyush has been on the board of directors for The Redwood, a not-for-profit shelter for women and their children fleeing domestic abuse. In 2020, Piyush was the first male elected to the board of directors for the Northern Lights Aero Foundation, which promotes and celebrates women in the field of aviation and aerospace in Canada. Piyush founded and chaired the URU Diversity and Inclusion Committee at Sunwing, and he also co-founded and chaired the successful Women Soar at Porter program. Piyush is a member of the International Flight Safety Foundation Business Aviation Advisory Committee. He has also been on the advisory boards for colleges, universities, most notably the Seneca College Aviation Program Advisory Committee. Piyush graduated from the Seneca Aviation Program, class of 93, and completed his Master of Business Administration graduate degree at the Rotman School of Business through the University of Toronto in 2014. I truly could not be more excited to have him join me today. Welcome, Piyush. Thank you, Laura. I'm excited to be here. This is uh, quite an opportunity. I'm looking forward to it. I don't know how many guests of ours say that it's quite an opportunity to come on, so I'm definitely going to have that as a highlight reel for our show. Okay, great. So with that, we'll jump right on in. How did you get your start in aviation? Oh, wow. Okay, that's a loaded question, but, um, you know, it goes back, you know, I could go back to when I was a kid and looking at planes in the sky and forcing my parents to drive me over to Pearson and watch the airplanes at the end of the runway. Um, and, and just, just that sense of, of being a pilot was something I knew I was very fortunate. Um, while most of my friends were kind of wondering what the heck they're going to do with their lives, they, uh, I, I was driven to one, in one direction. So then, you know, I, I, I geared my, my education towards that. And, uh, and then I did something really crazy in 1990, um, I graduated early from high school and went traveling with my friends and on the West Coast. And I, and I had uh, gone through the acceptance profile, the acceptance testing at Seneca College, and 
I got accepted. And then I got accepted into a program at York University called Space and Communication Sciences, and it was the first year of that program, and I felt, well, I should probably take, on, take that on, so I accepted it and declined uh, my offer at Central College. And that summer, I was on this thing called the Skyline Trail, which is in Jasper National Park, and uh, up there with a few of my buddies. And, and the thing about Skyline Trail is that uh, it's, it's several days of hiking up literally on the ridge line of, of these mountains and uh, a lot of time by yourself because we, you know, as the day progresses, you spread out. And, um, and I, I got to thinking that, and this is, this is probably mid, mid-August of that year, and uh, I came down off that mountain, uh, got in the van with my buddies, and said so we're going back to Toronto. And they said, well, we'll do a couple. No, no, we're going back to Toronto. And I literally drove that van right across the country. And I drove right into the parking lot at Seneca College and uh, went into the admin office. And I asked this woman, uh, you know, I told her I made a terrible mistake and uh, I need to be accepted to the program. She said, no, well, no, there's 120 spots and your spots were given to somebody else. And I said, well, I'm not leaving this office until you talk to the dean. And, she, you know, she tried to shoo me away. I wouldn't leave. And then she finally said, okay, come back tomorrow. And I, I came back at 9 a.m. the next morning, and I sat there, and she said, okay, I talked to the dean, and this year they're going to let 121 people into the program. And that's what happened. And that's what happened. Yeah. So what was it for you about being up on that mountain, out sort of, I guess, you had the time and space to be with your thoughts in that moment. What was it about that trip that sort of had aviation settled for you? You know, it was settled my entire life, and for some reason, I got swept away with, you know, what my friends were doing, and everyone was going to university, and a lot of them were going to York University, and I thought, oh, I should probably just do that, and you know, maybe I'll come back to aviation later. I, I, it was just something, you know, in in that period of time where you just kind of, you kind of, I was almost following the herd, and then I realized that's not what I want to do. That's not what I ever wanted to do. I, I want to be a pilot. I've always wanted to be a pilot. And the clarity that came with being up on that mountain, um, it was just, that was it for me. It was, there was no other ifs, ands, or buts. It's just like, I, I, the more time I was up there, the more time I was like, I, I can't believe that I've done this. And then it was just almost like a panic set in that I got to get back to Toronto and I got to make, I got to sort out this, this is my life we're talking about, right? I, I want to make sure that I'm doing what I wanted to do my entire life. And so, and that's what happened. So do you think had the dean said, that's it, sorry, we're capping it at 120, that's what we do, do you think that a year later you're, you would have gone into that program? Do you think that there would have been that, still that passion and that commitment to hold out for another year? Laura, I don't think I would have left that office. <laughs> I Honestly, I was determined. If they call the police, I don't care. I was determined to at least, if that, if that administrator couldn't get through the dean, then I was going to give him my pitch and say, I, I need to be here. You don't understand. I would get on my hands and knees if I had to. I, I was determined. And I didn't even, honestly, I didn't even think about what happens if it doesn't happen. Like I wasn't even, I wasn't even there. I was, I just knew it had to happen. So, um, you know, that's the answer. Taking no for an answer. I was not going to accept that. So when I speak to other people who are not from aviation, they'll often say that, of course, for them, they don't often meet people that grew up to do the job that they said they wanted to do when they were a little kid. It's very rare that you right. sort of have um, that come together as you would like. 
but often with aviation, you, you almost always have that. It's that passion from when you were a little kid or at some point in your childhood that ignites something within you and you can't say, no, you're not going to leave that office until you can make it happen. Right. No, that's, you're right. And that's, that, that is common. You'll find that I run across it all the time. Everyone that I, not everyone. In fact, there's a lot of people that came into it or by fluke or they just kind of happened upon it. But more often than not, it's people that wanted to do this and pursued it. And, and here they are. Yeah, that's for sure. So now you're in the program at Seneca. You're slowly coming together. Tell me about your first solo. Um, you know, at Seneca, it's very quick. You get once so so you get to. The, I remember that first day at Seneca. Just a little bit more there. I I remember the 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 dean walked through the classroom. And he said, "Look to your left. Look to your right. The person beside you will not be here uh, for the flying program in the in this in the summer." And so it, it set a tone of competitiveness. Um, that was kind of unique and, and a little bit, you know, uneasy, but, but I think that was intentional. So then after the first semester, half of the people were gone, so down to 60. And then by the uh, end of the second semester, it was down to 30. And so once you're in the flying program, there's another expectation that you're now going to, you know, going to carry on and, and do this. Out of the 30, by the way, only 24 ended up graduating. Um, and we graduated at a difficult time in the industry, but that, that's, that's another story. I guess, I guess at that point we knew that we had to do well, we had to perform now. Right. And, um, so it was within, you know, the expectation was within 10 to 15 hours, you would do your first solo. So that's pretty fast for any program. Um, so you're absolutely focused. You're in there flying every day. You're listening to every word. You're, you're trying to emulate everything that the uh, instructors telling you to do. You're, you're going back and listening to the professors who were telling you all this, not about the fundamentals of flight and all of that. And the next thing you know, uh, there you are in your first solo. I remember how, uh, proud I was, but it was kind of momentary because, uh, the next day we're on to the next thing, right? And it just kept on going. It was just very, very fast. Uh, a busy, busy summer where you, you had to reach these milestones. And, and uh, so the first flight was, was there and it was definitely a memory I'll never forget, but also, uh, you know, when that, when that instructor steps out and they don't tell you right that day and they typically will do that. And of course I did that when I was a flight instructor too, you get to a point where you're very close to the student and you go flying with them, do a couple circuits with them. Next thing you know, you're like, okay, this is it. And so you'd, I'd jump out of the airplane and let them go and the same thing that my instructor did with me and run up to the control tower and watch and uh you know <laughs> fingers and toes crossed hoping that nothing happens and, and away you go and so you mentioned that you'd worked as an instructor yeah yeah so coming out of college um in the last semester it was a very difficult time. This is 1993, and uh, the industry was in a really bad state. So nobody was really moving. The instructors weren't really moving, um, you know, out of your way. Basically, they move into small regionals or whatever, and then uh, making way for the uh, for the instructors to come through. and And I had made a you know a, a you know a name for myself within Toronto Airways, who was at the time contracted to do the. Uh, I'm an issue training for the Seneca College uh, students, and uh, they didn't have a job for me, but I, I did do my instructor rating. So in my last semester of, uh, of college, I also concurrently did my instructor rating, and I finished, and typically, 
you know, you get your instructor rating and typically the, the school that does your instructor rating usually finds a spot for you and then the, there you are. But that didn't happen for me. So I ended up uh, getting a job at um, Markham Airport. And um, it was really, it, I call it bush flying in the city because it's a one runway, uncontrolled airport. We had an old 150 and a 152 um sitting there parked out there and i remember that winter so this, this would be the the fall of 93 into the winter of 94 and um it was freezing cold uh half the time the runway wasn't really plowed it was you know some guy with a pickup truck that would come and and shovel the runway um the airplanes were kind of buried in snow i'd get up there and have to like you know shovel off the snow around the airplane and take off the wing covers and sitting that really it was like a, it was a trailer and sitting there and like burn garbage really in the fireplace just to keep myself warm it was uh you know and snow would come flying through some of the cracks in the windows and doors um it was really it was a really tough go and i ran a ground school and you know typically a ground school is where you get your a lot of your 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 flying customers right so and it was really on your own we were self-starters the airline was owned or the the, the the school was owned by by two Air Canada pilots um, uh, who just kind of did this as a side business. They show up every now and then, you know, how are things going? And you'd be telling them, but I, I was running their business for them. I was doing all their financing. I was doing all their accounting. I was doing everything, really. And, and they'd show up and, you know, collect their money and uh, ask if I needed anything. And that was kind of it. I was just pretty much on my own for, for most of that time. Now, after you left that flying context, eventually you found yourself to be the chief pilot and customer liaison pilot for Bombardier Aerospace. How did you transition from flight instructor to that role? <laughs> well, I have to take a step back then, because then um, I went to um, I, I moved back to I moved to Toronto Airways uh, in the spring of two, 1994 and got a job there and i got there at the right time because it was just prior to the seneca program starting so um when you're a flight instructor and you're um at toronto airways you're going to be really busy for sure because you know all the seneca students are going to come through um but i was actually primarily teaching any of the other students right more the senior students more senior instructors were teaching the uh the seneca college students so i was picking up everything else um, and so, you know, I was, I was instructing full steam. Uh, I became a duty pilot pretty quickly, which meant you're kind of responsible for, for setting the limits on the flying there. And for that particular day, but based on the weather, who could fly solo, who could fly cross countries, et cetera. Um, and then, uh, and then I started doing some multi-engine training, but in that I, uh, one of the students that I had, uh, was um the cfo of a um of a company called leach digital and leach digital had their own baron 58 and uh, two king airs um and so one day i'm just flying with him and he says you know we're looking for a pilot to fly our baron 58 and i said oh that's interesting um so that's kind of how that happened he you know he i didn't really have to interview it was just it happened. And I'm going to come back to this. We, I can encapsulate all of these things in terms of like, oh, you were lucky, right? Well, not necessarily, but I'll come back to that maybe later on. Um, 
about making luck happen. But um, the opportunity presented itself, and so I took it on. I became their corporate pilot for their Baron 58. Now they had head office in Toronto and another head office in Norfolk, Virginia. As a U.S. company, but um, but they, you know, a lot of their business uh, was was here out of Toronto. So, um, so the Baron 58 became mine. Um, I flew it. I at the time I had a pager, which was you know interesting. It was so cool. I had a pager and beep beep beep. Okay, I got to go to the airport. Um, and I was also responsible for maintaining the aircraft and making sure that uh, that everything was kept up to speed and, and the bills and the accounting, you know, the hangar and all that stuff was kind of fell on my shoulders. I was still instructing part time at the time, but that that kind of uh, led me into that. And I became quite friendly with the with the CEO of the company, who happened to be um, a for the former admiral of the USS Nimitz. In the first Gulf War, so he was an F-18 pilot turned into, you know, the commander of a ship, an aircraft carrier, in in a war. Uh, and him and I got along quite well. Uh, you know, pilot, pilot, and I'd go down to Norfolk and just hang out in his office. He took, he got me a tour on the USS John, John C. Stennis, which is a new aircraft carrier at the time, uh, never been commissioned, never been out to sea yet. And here I go, he goes, he sends me off to the Naval Air Station in Norfolk, the biggest one on the East Coast. And uh, I meet this officer there and he takes me on and I'm getting a private tour of a brand new aircraft carrier. It was just, it was just really, you know, bigger than life. Anyway, um, uh, so, so that was, that was really quite a, quite a good thing. And then, and then simultaneously, uh, an old friend of mine suggested that there's a job at Flight Safety that, that might be good for me. And, and um, so I got, I got a job at Flight Safety, and it was really to train uh, these pilots from, um, from Kenya. And they were, they were transitioning to the Dash 8, and my role was to basically teach them IFR in the Dash 8 simulator, you know, showing them how to use an EFIS and autopilot and all of that stuff. I, I wasn't even type rated on the Dash 8 at the time, but, um, but you know, sure enough, I could teach IFR and I learned enough about the airplanes that I can, you know, get it flying and, and show them how to shoot approaches and stuff. Um, and I was only there for a few days, maybe a couple of weeks actually. And then, uh, the general manager, he kind of personally one day says, you know, I shouldn't be doing this. You just started here. But there's a job across the street that I heard about, and I think you'd be the right person for it. And he didn't pick anyone else from flight safety. He picked me. And I was curious why he did that. But nevertheless, he took me across the street and uh, introduced me to uh, the manager of flight operations at, uh, at, at Bombardier de Havilland. And uh, two days later, I was offered a job. So that's how that happened. And so I became uh, the first officer, and I worked hard. That, pretty much that's how it was. I, I worked hard. I, I did things that no others didn't want to do. I, I rewrote some manuals, and I um, um, built QRHs, and, in fact, redrafted the entire QRH for the Dash 8s, um, and, and kind of got myself immersed in it. And then when, and I started traveling. I became a captain within a year and a half on the Dash 8, and I was starting to fly airplanes around the world, and my first assignment was in Ethiopia, and, uh, and that was the experience of a lifetime. I went there, flew an airplane in there, and I spent uh, uh, about three months there, uh, living and working in Addis, and um, 
And then I was there with another uh, pilot, much more senior than me. You know, there was some fighting that was occurring across the border between Eritrea. And uh, all of a sudden, everyone's evacuating out of the country. And um, uh, an airport called Makale, which is on the north of Ethiopia and right on the border with Eritrea, and an airport that I had just been to the day before, and all of a sudden it was, be, it was being bombed uh, by the Eritreans. So, um, you know, we get on the phone with Bombardier, and they're like, you got to get out of here. And I said, I didn't want to leave. And then the other pilot I was with, he was there with his wife, and uh, he said, no, we're, we're getting out of here. And next thing I knew, I was uh, at the airport in a mad scramble with hundreds of other people trying to get on the last flights out of out of Addis at the time. And off I went, you know, on the left hand of the flight up to Frankfurt, and I was home. Um, but, um, but it taught me so many things. I mean, I was just really just really loving being on the road and, and being part of that. And uh, then the Q400 program came along and uh, I got immersed in that. I was the um, fifth pilot to ever fly the Q400. Um, and then I was spending, geez, every, so we were down there on two week, two to three week rotations in Wichita. Um, and we were working six day a week. So I dreaded Sundays because Sundays were just, there's nothing to do in Wichita. Like, there's literally nothing to do in Wichita, especially on a Sunday. Um, so, <laughs> so I had to find myself something to do. I remember one day I, I said, I got to go see some mountains or something. So I get my car and I drive. And I had driven like seven or eight hours just to get to the Colorado border. And I realized, oh, no, the mountains are still another like four or five hours inland. <laughs> So I, I remember having dinner and then I turned around and drove back 14 hours of driving for nothing. Um, Did you have a moment with yourself where you finally crossed into Colorado of like, oh, thank God I'm not in Kansas anymore? Yeah, exactly. I clicked my heels and I'm not in Kansas anymore. It was, I'm only getting um, that simple to leave Wichita. Yeah, 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 something like that. I mean, there's so many experiences associated with being a test pilot at Bombardier and being at the flight test center. And you're, you're in a world of, you know, people walking around with flight suits and it's perfectly normal. And um, where, you know, you, you had these flight tests that were, you know, low, medium, high risk flight tests. And the high risk flight test, you're walking out to the flight line with a parachute and a helmet and uh, you're, you're, uh, reviewing the emergency aggress out of the airplane, you know the Q400 had a kind of had a um, blowout hatches uh, out underneath the wing, so explosive hatches. So if you you know it would actually little these explosive bolts would go off and you just jump out the window, or the aft cargo door had a hydraulic jack on it and it would shove the door out into the airstream and you would just go up the back. And there's ropes up and down. The, the top of the airplane along the sides and on the bottom, because if you're inverted or something, you still have to get to the back of the airplane, right? So yeah. these are all things that were just like, what? <laughs> you know, I'm still only, geez, I'm only like 28 or 29 years old and trying to figure out, like, and it was just happening so fast, right? So uh, in 2000, uh, the aircraft launches and uh, I, I became, I was a project pilot initially, and then all of a sudden I became the chief pilot. And uh, so I'm 29 years old and the chief pilot of Bombardier Aerospace, right? Pinch me. I, I didn't really understand how that all happened. I'd go to Japan and, and I'd be introduced as the chief pilot in Japan, you know, very hierarchical structure there. And 
people are like, who? Where, is this a joke? Is this Candy Camera or something like that? Is this a game you guys play? Like, no, he's the chief pilot. And then it became, you know, oh, Gandhi-san, you know, Gandhi-san, Gandhi-san. And that, that would be, you know, they would open doors for me and uh, make way for me. And here comes Gandhi-san. They sit me at the head of the table every time. And I uh, had a great rapport with, with, with the Japanese and I really, you know, enjoyed their culture. And they were, they were some of our key, you know, initial customers. And so we had to spend a lot of time holding hands and uh, working our way through that. So... The customer liaison part started when we started getting complaints from customers saying, you know, there's no real, there's no real avenue. And there were a lot of problems with the Q400. Arguably, it wasn't ready to go in service when it went into service and it had all kinds of little glitchy things. And, you know, we always joke that, you know, it was the control alt delete airplane where you have to keep rebooting things just to keep, it was, it was Bombardier's first digital airplane. Uh, you know, and, and having been, you know, an analog master airplane for so long, uh, you know, it looks and feels like a Dash 8, but it isn't at all. And um, it's all digital and, anal and and the analog all went away. So all those ones and zeros really started mattering and they didn't always uh, compute properly. So uh, we, we, we had to deal with that. And so so they needed an avenue to do that. So I started uh, what was called the Flight Up Steering Committee. And every six months we would gather um, in Toronto or elsewhere usually Toronto, um, and we had a co-chair, uh, a, co a representative from the airlines, and myself. And we would set the agenda, and we would run a three-day meeting in Toronto. And it was really great because we got, you know, we got all the operators around the world coming in every six months. Bonding occurred. Best practices were shared. Uh, they became really personal friends, and, you know, if they had a problem, quite frankly, they didn't call me all the time. They would call these other people that they made connections with and, and get answers on, hey, how did you deal with this, right? And, and the way they went. So when it comes to being sort of the customer liaison pilot, it's not just about if you have a problem, give me a shout and we can help work you through that. Or if you want to do more developed training or whatever it may be, it is, or at least it sounds like at the time, it was very much about trying to sort of create a whole community related to the Q400 so that there could be that um, coming together and sharing of knowledge without even having to go always to Bombardier. It could just be within sort of the different operators as well. That, that's exactly it. And and it was so successful that the CRJ, for example, had been in service for quite some time uh, and had literally, you know, thousands of aircraft out there uh, and they didn't have such a program. So then uh, they developed uh, a similar uh, program for the, for the CRJ. Um, they, they basically copied my template and, um, and, and then, and they started that. And then, then, you know, even the Global Express ended up having one and, uh, some of the other airplane models within Bombardier, but we started that and it was out of a need. I remember that first meeting, I called the first meeting just to like kind of gather people around and I, I was being yelled at and screamed at and like, where do we go and how come there's no support here and blah, 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 blah. And it just became pretty obvious that these operators needed a place to vent. They needed somewhere where the, you know, and, and sometimes it got pretty heated and contested. And, and there were a couple, you know, jerk customers that you dreaded to give them the floor because you knew that they would just be spewing stuff and, and, and pointing fingers and doing all that stuff. I remember our chief engineer, head of engineering, uh, he's sitting there and he's taking these questions in this one, Chief pilot, I won't mention the airline because it will identify him, but 
he was just going after him and our, our head of engineering just he gets up and he just walks to the back of the room and he slams the door and he walks out and he just said like and you know and, and we all knew what that was and you know i had to kind of stand up there and say guys this is not about personal attacks right this is yeah. about we're trying to help and you're right we're not perfect and we've made some mistakes and there's some problems with the airplane we're here to work with you to fix them, right? And we can't say yes to everything because yes means money and and means engineering and means times and resources and stuff. And so we're going to do the best we can, but we're not going to immediately jump on every every issue that you raise. And some of them are unreasonable, quite frankly. So we're going to do the best we can. Anyway, it's we almost kind of needed a moment like that where people were like, okay, you know, let's let's try to work collaboratively here. And and I. I became this like peacemaker almost between the company and these pilots. And so that liaison role was, was a real liaison role, right? If we had to send a bad, if there was a bad news message coming out, like for example, we're going to have to ground some of these airplanes because of, you know, something that was found, that would be me yeah. sending out a message to all the operators like, okay, guys, the AD has not come out yet, but it's going to probably tomorrow or the next day. I'm giving you a heads up. Uh, this is going to be painful, and yeah. uh, you know, and then I'd be getting a lot of that back. But it 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 also got me like so intimately connected with them, and they trusted me. That was the key, right? They 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 really trusted me, and I was honest with them, and uh, I didn't sugarcoat things, or I didn't try to, you know, it wasn't a sales pitch. It was just I'm here to help you, um, and and I'll be honest with you, and I'll tell you yes, and I'll tell you no, and when I say no, I'll tell you why. And that was kind of my motto in that, and, and it worked. And I mean, really, when it comes to someone liaising with customers about a, a product, at the end of the day, it's, it is a plane, but it is also a product. You want someone that will will give you that heads up that there there's an AD coming out, as opposed to you have to find out through other means of communication, well, I know the guy that should have told me, why didn't he tell me? So I can appreciate right. that it's, it's also just about, yeah, basically keeping a happy customer base, not just in terms of knowing that you're accessible it's about keeping people happy and happy with you about the product that you have given them ultimately these people are the heads of the flight ops department so when their company comes to them and says we need either more airplanes or a different or a new airplane they are going to be in that decision process and one of the things that they're going to be asking is internally is do we get the customer support we want from bombardier and i wanted them to jump up and say absolutely we have the best customer support there is and i was that i was that person they had my phone number and they would call me in the middle of being chief pilot and customer liaison pilot with bombardier porter how did you first hear about porter and what was it like to be part of an airline during its startup so i didn't hear about porter it wasn't even called porter um in the early 2000s uh we were working with bob deluce uh, to help to, to bring the Q400 to to the island airport. Now you have to remember, one of the original spec designs of the Q400 was for it to land at the Toronto Billy Bishop Airport, because at the time Air Canada was operating out there and they were our prime target as a customer. So we wanted to make sure that the airplane could land in all weather on a 4,000 foot runway. And so that was one of the design criteria of the airplane. Um, and then Bob Deleuze comes along and wants to start it. So I ended up spending a lot of time with him. We did some demo flights. I flew down into the island, took him and some potential investors around for flights. Uh, he was up at, at Downsview with us. He would fly in in his 185. 
and park the airplane and come meet with us and we talk about aircraft performance and what can the aircraft do and all this other stuff and then uh, the mayor came into town and said, no way, we're not allowing you to build a bridge. And the whole thing was shelved. And that was it. That was the end of it. Um, uh, but, you know, we stayed loosely in touch with them, and we just thought, you know, that's it, it's dead, right? So we moved on to other other projects, other sales companies. So as the customer liaison pilot, as the chief pilot, I was not only involved in flight testing airplanes or dealing with customers, I was involved in sales campaigns. And I would, you know, certain customers, I'd spend a lot of time with them, um, talking to them from the flying perspective, the operational perspective, the performance perspective. I'd also be at air shows all over the world and world tours and all of that stuff, world demo tours where you just, you know, fly, pick up the airplane in Toronto and, you know, three or six months later, you end up back in Toronto after doing a full circumference of the, of the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, I did that eight times, eastbound and westbound. Um, and those are just unbelievable trips, right? You see every corner of the world and all of that stuff. And I was on the road for seven months of every year in total. It was about seven months of every year. I, in fact, it, I was actually being conservative if I tell you that. It's probably a little bit more than that. A lot of traveling, a lot of, you know, whatever. Um, and, uh, I had married in 2004 and I had always envisioned myself being a, you know, a hands-on father, you know, someone that's there for all the events and, you know, coach baseball and hockey or whatever. I mean, I was, I was planning to do that, but almost impossible in the role at Bombardier, right? You know, I talked to some of my colleagues and said, oh yeah, no, I haven't been to my daughter's birthday in four years, right? You know, that's the kind of stuff that didn't really appeal to me. I, I wanted to not, not be there. Anyway, true story. Um, I am, uh, we traveled, we took an airplane to Japan and we ferried it and uh, I, I happened to get my wife on that trip and again, it was just because of my connections with my Japanese friends and they allowed her to fly. So we flew this airplane up through Alaska uh, and across the Kamchatka Peninsula into Petropavlovsk and then down into, um, yeah, down, down to Japan. Anyway, whatever, long story long. Um, she was always like, and we were back in Tokyo. We were staying at this hotel, that, that same hotel that's that's in the movie Lost in Translation. And um, um, you're sitting there, it was a beautiful hotel. And she wasn't drinking. She wasn't feeling very good. Anyway, we come back to Toronto. The next week, I'm in Copenhagen. She calls me. She says, "I think I'm pregnant." I said, uh, "How could that be? We haven't. <laughs> I haven't been around." <laughs> okay, just kidding. Um, and so, sure enough, that was on Wednesday. On Thursday, I came home. Sure enough, she's pregnant. And on Friday, out of the blue, Bob Blues called me and said, "You want to help me start an airline?" I said, "What?" He goes, "You want to help me start an airline?" "What airline?" "My airline out of the island." I said, "Well, I thought it was dead, Bob." He goes, "Nope." So I met him on the Sunday, and this is in November of 2005. And I met him on the Sunday, he says, come to my offices. And uh, that's where he presented to me this plan. It took him three months to convince me. Um, and it wasn't until January of 2006 that I finally said, okay, Bob, I'll do it. And he says, well, when do you want to start? And I said, February 15th. Why February 15th? My birthday and he said okay February 15th it is so I showed up on the hangar in the hangar six in the back of the hangar and there's 10 other people there <laughs> and that's it 
And that's when we got into the raccoon and whether or not, and the name Porter and why Porter. Well, Porter is there, definition of Porter, lighten your load, right? Give you assistance, provide that, that service and travel that you, that you need and deserve, right? So that's where it all came out. And, um, and that was it. I never looked back. Uh, I love my friends, my former colleagues at Port at Bombardier. So good friends with a lot of them. And what's it like, right? Like the second part of your question, what's it like to start an airline? Oh my God. Yeah. What is it like to be part of that group of 10 people? The company doesn't even have a name yet. It's just you guys trying to figure it out. This is beyond flying refined. This is beyond. It wasn't even. We didn't even have flying music. refined. Like flying just, refined wasn't even part of that. It was an idea. You're it was part an, of an idea. idea. You know, it was like I remember. So that first day, February fifteenth, two thousand six, I walk in there, and I walk over to Bob. Now there's he doesn't even have his own office, right? Like he's kind of in the corner, but like that's his area. This is the back that's of a his corner. Yeah, his corner on it's the second Bob's floor. Over there, yeah. yeah, the second floor where it's his offices and there's windows that look down into a hangar. And everyone has like these, they weren't even really desks, they were just tables, right? Like, <laughs> this is your table, okay? I, and I walk over to him and I said, Bob, Bob, uh, what do you want me to do? You know, where do I start? And he says, Piyush, this is a completely entrepreneurial environment. Do what you need to do to get the job done. You got it? I go, I got it, Bob. That was the only instruction Bob ever gave me in 12 years. It was just do what you need to do to get the job done. And I, I, I like that, those words resonate. They echo in my mind. I remember them. I've, I've used them with other people. Like that's a leader telling you, I trust you. Go do it. Right. Whatever you need to do, go do it. And so there was, you know, I walk in one day and there's a roll of toilet paper on my desk. And I was like, what's this for? And they're like, well, we're going to test the toilet paper on the airplane. So there's actually a couple brands here and I want you to take them home and use them. I mean, that's how grassroots we were. Right. That's how grassroots we were. It was testing the toilet paper uh wine tastings food tastings uh this branding this color this palette pantone this pantone color oh my god the pantone if you use the wrong pantone palette they would come a guy by the name of andrew pierce would come down like, where did you get that color from well it's close isn't it andrew no 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 has to be the exact we were we were just meticulous about every one of those details and then hiring the first group of pilots was the most critical element that we felt that at least I felt my job was and we had a job fair and out at Pearson this hotel and we interviewed literally 100 people and uh to get 10 for our first course and those 10 pilots I would never choose I would never choose anyone differently if I were to do that again today, they were the 10 best, perfect, most perfect pilots, but also ambassadors, like give it their all kind of people that, that I would ever, and I'm still in touch with all of them. And I love them like brothers. They, they built our airline with us when we didn't get, take delivery of our airplane right away. They were like, what do we, what can we do? And like, come on in and bring your overalls. Cause we're cleaning the hangar floors. 
and without hesitation, you know, they would be in there and we'd be sweeping the hangar floors and doing whatever it took to build that airline to get it ready, right? For, Mm -hmm. and it was day or night. We didn't have reserve pilots. We just, whoever needed to be there, just, you know, it was just all hands on deck, every single one. Recently, I had somebody who just got hired at Porter and he says, you know, your name is over is all over everything <laughs> still. All the manuals, all the training, pro- like your name is still all over that stuff. And I said, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It's going to take a while for them to purge me entirely from from uh, Porter because when you're the one that starts the airline the first 12 years, all the procedures that you built, that's what they're, that's what they're living on. Right? And there's, there, there wasn't much need to change a lot of that stuff after I left, so I still have my name on it. Having had the opportunity to be the chief pilot at Porter and also with the chief pilot at, or rather also being the chief pilot at Bombardier, what, or rather, how does the role of chief pilot differ between a 705 operator and a manufacturing context? So remember I told you about the flight ops steering committee and how we had a, uh, a, a chair from the OEM and then a chair from the, um, from the operators, right? And so the year in 2006, uh, when I flipped, you know, flipped roles, the operators immediately voted me as their new co-chair, right? So they wanted, <laughs> the operators wanted the guy that they know and trust, but also the guy with the inside information to actually be on their side, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember the very first meeting I'm at, for the flap steering committee meeting, I was going to answer your question. Someone asked asked me, uh, what's different between your role as chief pilot at Bombardier and chief pilot at Porter? And I said, I learned how little I know or knew about operating this airplane in an operational or airline environment. Hmm. As a test pilot, you think you know, you don't. You have no idea of all the intricacies and nuances and special things that have to happen. And the checklist that I wrote at Bombardier, shit, you can blow it up because it doesn't apply in an operational environment because there's passengers and there's people and there's CSRs and there's fuel trucks and there's baggage and all these things that you don't ever deal with as a test pilot, all of a sudden they're there. And then you got to deal with them and then you got to build them into your thing. And it's a whole new level of learning. So it's completely, completely different roles. Except for the fact, I mean, we were, as a chief pilot of Bombardier, I was in charge, it was a, it was a 604 uh, ops certificate that we had, which allowed us to carry passengers, and the passenger carriage was for the demo flights and stuff. But, um, so there was some of that, and, and emergency grass and, and all of that, evacuation, fire drills, all of that stuff still had to happen, so there was that similarity. That's pretty much where it began and ended. You know, hiring pilots by the hundreds, um, training pilots by the hundreds, uh, you know, building route net- networks, doing operational uh, evaluations on routes. You fly to Ottawa. You think it's just like people playing fly to Ottawa. No, 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 no. It takes weeks and months of planning to fly that route to Ottawa, talking to air traffic. And, and, and I mean, it was just on and on and on, right? So, yes, the whole, whole, whole same title, different, 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 different world altogether. And I had to learn it all. Did having the experience of being the chief pilot in a 705 for an actual operator, did it maybe sort of give you pause to maybe reflect back of, oh, had I had the operational experience, had I had this perspective 
previously when I was the chief pilot at the manufacturer that you would have approached things differently in hindsight? Um, I, I know that Bob was always very, that was his one hang up on hiring me was that I didn't have any airline experience per se, right? What I did have though is, is um, I, I flew with every single Q400 operator between 2000 and 2006 that operated the airplane. I flew in Denmark, I flew in Austria, I flew in uh, Portland, Oregon, I flew in Japan, I flew in Australia, I flew everywhere. And I flew on the line, I wear their uniforms and I learned their operation, right? I wasn't the man in charge, but I was part of it and I would make operational recommendations. So that's how, to Bob, I never worked for an airline, I worked for, for 20 different airlines. As someone who has hired hundreds and hundreds of pilots over the years, what advice did you have to a pilots to pilots applying for their first flying job? Okay, so this is, I love that you asked this question and this is the advice I give to anyone that asks me this question. Are you listening? This is, I am. This is it. This is it. Flying is considered this really glamorous, you know, mm, wow, you're a pilot and you get to walk around a terminal with your four bars and your tie and all this stuff, right? Let me break it down for you. You are locked in a closet, a small closet at that, like a coat closet, with a complete stranger for eight hours. You have never met this person before. And you met them at the crew room or at the, uh, the, the dispatch counter or right at the gate in many cases. Never met this person before, and now you got to spend eight hours literally locked in a closet with them. Okay? So here's my advice. When I interview a pilot, that pilot has made it to that interview room through whatever screening process our airline has. Right? They have met the minimum qualifications. They know how to fly an airplane. They've got 3,000 hours, and they haven't killed themselves yet. They haven't killed anyone. Okay, so they know how to fly an airplane. Do they know how to fly an airplane? No, but we'll teach them. Confident in our training program, I know that. Within 30 seconds of me shaking that person's hands, I ask myself, do I want to spend eight hours locked in a closet with this person? It has nothing to do with your ability to fly. I ask myself, do I want to spend eight hours in a closet with this person? And by the end of that eight hours, am I going to ask that person to go out for dinner and have a drink with me? Or am I going to say, hey, yeah, I'll see you tomorrow? Or am I going to want to strangle them? Right? And that's how I decide if I'm hiring you or not. So when you come in to that interview room, be your genuine you. Make it so that you want to spend eight hours in the closet with that person. I remember the very first time I heard you sharing that advice. And I remember hearing that for the first time and it was refreshing because ultimately the takeaway is you can have all these qualifications. You can fly a plane. That's great. I can teach you how to fly our plane. I can't teach you to be kind. I can't teach you to have the right attitude. You can learn it, but I can't teach it. And it's, it's that sort of secondary element of you can figure this out, but no one else is going to be able to do it for you. And I remember finding that just a really refreshing way for someone that was thinking, I'm never going to have the correct qualifications, but maybe I can just be 
kind and pleasant and that will also get me somewhere oh my god just be you just be you like you have friends you have family you have people that like you right you you're I mean, unless you're someone that sits in a, clo- in a corner by themselves and doesn't know what talks to you, well, then that, that's a problem that I can't resolve for you, right? EQ is, oh my God, I'm leading myself to that, that whole business about making luck happen, but EQ is the intangible quality that nobody could really, really teach properly, but it's everything. <laughs> and if you don't have even a, a little sense of EQ, I feel for you because... It's very difficult and you will get a job. Don't worry. People are hiring people just by like, okay, heartbeat. Yes. 3000 hours. Okay, good. Here you go. That's not who I was ever hiring at Porter at Sunwing. I would never hire a pilot based on their heartbeat and their qualifications. Now, during your time at Porter, you had the opportunity to pursue a master's of business administration through U of T. What was the experience like to pursue this and how did it change the trajectory of your career? Oh, uh, such a good question. Thank you for asking. Um, so uh, it was 2013, and um, uh, so you know, I've I'd, I'd been the director of flight ops for some you know seven or eight years already, and um, and they wanted to, and, and our VP of flight ops, um, my mentor, quite frankly, uh, he had left, um, gone on to retirement, so they needed a new VP of flight ops, and so they were interviewing some people, um, myself and, and um, a couple other people, my colleagues and whatever. Anyway, um, the company that did the, uh, the the interviewing wrote a report saying uh, this person is ready to become part of the executive, blah blah blah, except. Uh, it would help if he had some, you know, some some greater business acumen to to supplement his his, his knowledge. So I didn't think anything of it, except that Bob Deleuze called me into his office one day and said, uh, uh, "We think uh, you should go get your MBA, and we'll support you on that." And I was like, "What? Wow! Okay, and totally out of the blue. Didn't expect it." And um, and sure enough, that's that's where it went. Um, he, um, uh, so then in uh, 2014, September, I started my MBA program, 15 month executive MBA program, and I'm class of 65 accomplished, you know, executives from, you know, all over. And um, the most incredible experience, uh, uh, it, was, it was grueling. I, I, you know, we had to, Two young, two young uh, girls, and uh, my wife is also was also doing her PhD, um, also working full time. I'm working full time and doing my MBA, and it was just really, really a tough time, you know, personally, but um, so thrilling and, and invigorating and uh, inspiring. I mean, there were so many adjectives I could put to it, but it was really, really a great experience. And um, I walked out of the MBA, and true to the word, um, three weeks before I graduated, uh, I got called into the COO's office at the time, and he said, uh, we're promoting you to, to vice president of flight operations. So it was really, you know, a great thing planned out, and, and the way I went. And um, it, it added a whole new level of uh, perspective and understanding um, from from being the guy in charge of a flight operations group to being in charge of a business entity within the organization 
And I understood things I didn't understand before in terms of budgeting and accounting and, and finance, but also marketing and, um, you know, uh, uh, how we are perceived as an, as an airline, as an operation. And it really did change how, how I looked at things, both at Porter and elsewhere. And in fact, it was probably the key ingredient as to why uh, someone chose me over other people because they said they wanted to turn their flight operations group into a business entity rather than just a, an operational entity. Um, and they were looking for somebody and, and with, with that kind of business acumen and, uh, and there I was. So that was an easy fit for me. What was the biggest revelation you had moving into the VP of flight ops role? Um, you know, a lot of the stuff I had already been doing because, uh, I was kind of the interim VP of flight ops. But, um, when I started looking at the financial statements and the budgeting, uh, I thought from a whole different perspective. I understood what a balance sheet meant. I understood what, um, you know, debts and credits and, and debits and credits and, and uh, what ledgers meant. And I understood all of that stuff that goes into to an airline, a successful airline. And that when you, you know, offer somebody or you, uh, for example, change, you know, some of the, um, uh, the remuneration for your pilot group, what the long-term effects of that are and forecasting how that's going to be and the, and the, uh, you know, uh, the value of a dollar today versus, um, versus what it's going to be five years from now or 10 years from now and forecasting that out, um, allowed me to actually see things that, in, from a whole different perspective. And so with something that I would have said, yeah, sure, let's just do that. I could now take a secondary look at it and from, from a real financial point, point of view and understand the ramifications of any changes that, that might that I might have anticipated or that I might have uh, planned and then now anticipating what that's actually going to cost the company in the long term. Um, those are things that really kind of uh, that I ended up using every day in, in my job and, and you know and I look back and think how could I have done it without that knowledge? Uh, now now I it's a secondary to me to have that, that knowledge and I think it's essential uh, for the roles that I was that I was holding at the time. How do you think having had the experience of doing an MBA maybe influences the way you approach your work now? Right. For those same reasons, I mean, I, I look at things uh, from a financial perspective, um, from a marketing perspective, from a, from a sales pitch perspective. I mean, you know, now I spend a lot of time pitching products. And, you know, one of the things we learned, one of the courses, you know, we're talking about everything from governance uh to um you know doing your your 45 second elevator pitch uh those are things that we we learned and we honed in, in our mba classes um understanding what a business case really is and not just you know putting an idea on paper but also showing the pros and cons of, of something you're trying to pitch and so you you would actually uh, what i you know started doing was saying it's going to cost us this much and it's going to cost us that. And these are things that you have to kind of take into consideration. Um, I would actually, um, you know, self-identify um, uh, pro problems with my own business cases and, and actually kill them myself and just say, yeah, that's not going to, that's not going to, you know, that's not going to actually hold water. Even though it's something I really wanted to do. Um, thought it was good for the company, but when I look at it from a, from a business perspective, it's actually not good for the company. And I don't think, and so that gave me, 
um, you know, a little bit more credibility when it came to, to pitching anything to the senior executives. Now, after leaving Porter, you became the vice president of flight operations at Sunwing, um, mm -hmm. but could also still be found often flying a 737 as a captain. Mm -hmm. Why was it important to you as VP to still be flying the line and maintaining currency? Okay, so I, I, and I made that a condition of employment when I when I joined Sunwing because I had always been a pilot at, at Porter and I had always continued to fly the line. The one thing I started to do towards the end of my tenure at Porter was I, I no longer became a, a check pilot because um, there was some conflict of interest there and, you know, being a person that, you know, kind of oversees the entire operation and then also check pilot and checking somebody, it, it kind of put them in an unfair position. So I, I stopped doing that. But when I, when I joined Sunwing, I said, it's, just, it's, it's critical that I understand, um, you know, what happens on the line, what the perspective is from a pilot. Um, and, and, and so I go out and fly. I go down, fly, you know, a turn to Cancun or something. I'd meet people. I'd talk to people. I would understand their perspective on things. And I'd come back with a, you know, a notebook full of, uh, you know, points of things that we need to fix or need to correct or need to look at. And I'd be in the ops meeting the next morning going, this is what I actually saw. And these are the things that we need to fix. And we, we can do better at this and we can do better at that. And so that perspective, you know, unlike other people, was it's one thing to sit in an office and, and hear stories and anecdotally say, well, maybe there's a problem down there. Or actually go find the line and experience it yourself, right? Because I was new to Sunwing, not everyone knew who I was. So it was almost like this undercover boss kind of thing where you'd mm -hmm. actually go fly the line and only, you know, like the cabin crew didn't really know who I was. And, and a lot of the pilots knew, but like didn't know of me. And, the, you know, they get in an airplane and they're like, oh my God, I'm flying with the VP of flight ops. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You're just flying with uh, Captain Gandhi here. No different than any other captain you're going to fly with. We're going to go out and fly the line. And guess what? I don't fly as much as, as normal captains do. So if I make a mistake or if I see, if you see me doing something wrong, point it out. And uh, I'm happy to take that, that kind of critique uh, as we're flying. And I, you know, try to just shave all of that hierarchy away from the flight deck and, and just make it a normal environment for people. And then they would tell you stuff, right? Then they would start, you know, confiding in you about stuff that they see and they hear and they, they experience. And uh, that, that gave me that whole knowledge. And so then when I'm sitting there in front of, you know, 100 pilots at a town hall meeting or something like that, uh, I speak with credibility. I, I, now, I now can talk the talk and walk the walk as them. And I said, yeah. And when they'll say, yo, you know, every time I go into, you know, Puerto Vallarta, this is what happens. And I'm like, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've experienced it myself. We're working on it. Right. And immediately there's, there's that. And so I think it was an invaluable piece of what I did. I'm sort of drawing parallels to being in management and flying the line, similarly to sort of customer liaison with uh, with Bombardier, back right. to from the manufacturer perspective and later from the operator's perspective. It's it's that duality that you keep getting to do. Right. Yeah. And it is that perspective, right? Like being able to talk from someone else's perspective and understanding what they've what they felt and what they see and what they experience like when you can actually talk to them on that level immediately they're going to be more interested in what you have to say they're going to trust you they're going to tell you things that they wouldn't normally tell 
an executive who comes off his, his perch, you know, to come down to the line and go do some, you know, fill some time in the afternoon. That's not how I approach it at all. I, I'm out there flying the line. I'm going to grunt it out with, and I flew, you know, some of the ugly pairings like the, the red eyes to Vancouver just to see what that was like. Right. I didn't pick all the, all the, the juicy flights to, you know, Fort Lauderdale and, and uh, Havana, right? Like I picked, I picked flights that, that where I would go and see experience something new. I, one of the things I always tried to do is fly somewhere differently so that I could see as much of the network as, as possible so that, um, you know, I can, I can hear and, 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 and taste all of that stuff that, that, that our pilots uh, experience. You've had so many incredible experiences. You've obviously worked very hard as well, but you also have hinted throughout the episode, but just in general, you talk a lot about luck and how that all comes together. What are your thoughts on luck and how it happens? Okay, so I'm glad you asked this question because it kind of ties a lot of this stuff together. Um, I was asked um, by Rotman to want, uh, to come and give a speech on uh, you know, my career and um, how I was able to progress from the various rules into the new rules and all that stuff. And people are going to say that I was lucky. I was lucky that I had that student who was a CFO of Leach Digital, and that's how I got that job as a corporate pilot. And I was lucky that um, I got into Toronto Airways at the right time, and 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 the season started, and I, I got promoted pretty quickly. And I was lucky that I, you know, got that job at Flight Safety, which led to that lucky encounter at Bombardier, and lucky that I got from. Uh, you know, meeting Bob DeLuce on on uh, these demo flights and, and preparation for that original uh, what would have been Porter back in the early 2000s into like, oh, now you got lucky because you knew him and all stuff. And I talk about making luck happen. So luck is one thing where something fortunate happens to somebody and it's fairly random. Um, I've taken the randomness out of that luck element and the reason the way I've done that is by making myself uh, lucky by putting myself in a position where uh, when that opportunity presents itself the person that they're going to think of is me and why are they going to think of me because I've worked hard I've shown that I'm good at what I do I understand the issues I understand uh, the job the role and 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 this is the thing that I also tie into this is my EQ. Um, I've been measured with a very high EQ. I can read a room, I can read a person, I can read the emotions. And it's not something that I learned in aviation college, it's not something I learned at, you know, in my MBA. In fact, when I gave the speech to, to the MBA people, I said, this is the one thing that Rotman does not teach is EQ. And I think EQ is actually the single most important variable or aspect in my life that has, has brought me a lot of my success. So when you tie in that EQ and I'm talking with, let's just say the general manager of the, of the, uh, of flight safety. And I, I've, I've learned to connect with that person. I'm new employee there. He's got 50 other instructors that he could have walked across the street, but he knows who I am because I've connected with them in some way. And, uh, and then he takes me across the street and I connect with the manager there in some way. And I understand and I get that feeling and I'm with it. And then next thing you know, he offers me a job. If I didn't make luck happen, I wouldn't have got that job. If I didn't make luck happen, Bob DeLuce wouldn't have, you know, 
tap me on the shoulder to be his first chief pilot. He would have found somebody else, and there were probably a dozen other people that he could have that he could have uh, tapped on. He knows everybody in the business, right? Why did he tap on me? Why did he pick me? And it's not luck. It's about making myself um, the person that they want to have in that role. Say, I I have a similar outlook on the idea of luck, but rather it comes down to there is still that element of randomness in my view of luck, but it's about being able to take advantages, take advantage of the opportunities that come your way. Um, if I have, if I don't have the correct flight training qualifications to take advantage of a job that's being floated or, hey, this is an opportunity that's out there right now, well, I'm, it's not going to come together for me. And that's not me being unlucky. That's just me not being ready to take advantage of it. So I think it's interesting to sort of spin my narrative on its head and say it's about being the right person and making it known that you're the right person through hard work, through consistency, through that networking, as opposed to, I guess, ultimately, and being ready to take advantage of that opportunity because you've done all the other parts of it. So that's another interesting piece. The networking piece, uh, I've never networked. Never, I've never actually networked. I, whether I'm looking for a job or not, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll go and do it. And I start doing this. And then people are like, that's the guy that'll get things done. Why don't we ask him to do it? And that's how it happens. Hmm. I say, I don't necessarily think my idea of luck is wrong, but I, I think I like yours more. Well, it's, they're very, very similar. They and are. They are. Just work hard all the time. And don't do it for the reason of like trying to suck up or kiss up because people see through that. I just do my job and I do it well. And then when an opportunity comes, that's when you get noticed. So in your present role, you are the vice president of operations and business development at the Presage Group, which is an organization which works to identify human behavioral risks um, and applies them, I guess, in your context, aviation. What does a typical project look like for you? Right. So I will go back to how that all unfolded in that um, when I left Sunwing right at the beginning of the pandemic, I was in the midst of some real personal challenges with my daughter who was quite ill. And, and so I was focusing on her and I get a call from uh, Dr. Martin Smith, Marty, and he says, I hear you're a free agent. And I said, well, yeah, he goes, well, do you want to come work for me? And I said, again, didn't apply, but uh so you want to come work for me? And I said, no, actually, I don't right now. I'm I'm focusing on my daughter, and I need to be here with her and whatever. Why don't you give me a call in a couple months and see what happens? And this is uh, probably like May of 2020. And uh, about three weeks later, he called me back, and he goes, you sure? Because I could really use your help. And so we started talking, and I started helping him, and I was working with him kind of on and off through some, some pretty important projects. Uh, until finally I signed on with him and I, I still had some stuff to sort out with Sunwing. So anyway, it was all, it all worked out. And, and then he offered me the role of vice president of operations and business development, uh, at Presage Group. So the reason why he knew me is because I was a customer of his twice, both at Porter and at, uh, Sunwing. And, um, the interesting thing about Presage is that everyone that works there, everyone is a former customer. Yeah, you know, if that doesn't tell you, if that's not testimony, you know, it's a testimonial to the to the product, I don't know what is. Every everyone that works there is a former customer, meaning they loved your product so much that they want to come actually work for you and you know be part of that. 
Um, typical day for us is we're either, well, the, the two sides of my job, a VP of operations, meaning we have an active project underway and I'm trying to coordinate um, who's doing what, signing people, sending them into country uh, or into the into the uh, theater to, to actually work with the, with the client. Um, or uh, business development where I'm actively pursuing new new uh, business now I'm ne I'm not a salesperson and even though my MBA helped me with you know the marketing and sales side of things I never proclaimed to be a salesperson I don't want to be a salesperson that's not what I do and they know that but once we have a lead and a, and, and a connection into an organization then I'll work with that organization to get them to a point where they uh, sign on a contract and then the next thing you know we're underway a lot of what we do, um, so you know, we, we do look at the psychology of decision making in the moment. That's that's really what uh, the essence of our intellectual property, our IP, is all about. And so, um, often it is in the aviation sector, but but it's not necessarily. There's no discrimination between an operational environment where people are making critical decisions between that of a flight deck or that of a nuclear power station or of that of a, uh, you know, an air traffic control uh, station or even food services um, or um, uh, other verticals that, that you wouldn't even imagine, right? Where there are people in these, in these operating environments uh, that are making these critical decisions. Some of them are life and death. Um, and you want to make sure that they're making the right decisions. So uh, I, I focus, uh, my role is really in the aviation sector, and we have other people that, that focus on other areas in our organization. But um, my, the business vertical that I, I work very closely with is, is with these um, airlines particularly, um, but also other organizations. What we're going to do is we're going to go in there, and what we will do typically is we will go in, understand the operation, be it an airline or some special operation, and we will um, uh, understand uh, where some of their, their key hotspots are. And typically, it's around the go-around decisions, like the last 1,000 feet of the approach, and what happens in the last 1,000 feet, and then uh, what decisions are made to either go around or not go around. Because typically, um, well, the data shows that 3% of unstable approaches end up going around. That means 97% of unstable approaches continue to a landing. Hmm. That is a very dangerous and true fact of life in this aviation business. And we're trying to change those, um, those metrics um, because that's where all the accidents happen and incidents happen and the runway overruns and excursions, et cetera. So we go in and we understand why people are non-compliant, um, why they don't believe in the procedures that have been dictated to them, and uh, what we can do to help mitigate that. When they came into uh, Porter, when Dr. Smith, when Marty came out and knocked on my door, and, you know, I was like, who the heck are you to come tell me how to operate the Q400? I mean, I wrote the friggin' book. I did. I literally wrote the book. I wrote the QRH. I wrote the manuals. I wrote the book on that airplane. And you think some psychologist is going to come tell me how to operate this airplane? Well, I did crack the door open for him, and he came in, and we went and applied uh, his science. And I learned a lot of things that were just, like, earth-shattering to me. You know, only 34% uh, of our pilots actually followed the procedures uh, explicitly. Um, what do you mean? They always follow the procedures when I'm flying with them. Of course they do. 
because you're the boss and they're flying with you. And if you're a check pilot with them, then they're going to do exactly the way you're supposed to do it, right? That's yeah. not how they really do it. But it's not that they're doing it wrong. That's the other thing is we harness the fact that their non-compliance is actually telling us something. So we go in there and we um, evaluate uh, what it is that they're doing differently. And then we go and we put them into work. We, we, we build a report of findings and say, these are all the things that we're understanding about your operation that are going to really knock your socks off. One of those being that, you know, most of your pilots don't even agree with your procedures. They fly it their own way. Uh, your thousand foot stable approach height is ridiculous because if you're at 900 feet and you haven't you know, done the last two items on a checklist, um, and you're at Pearson Airport on the approach, you know, with 25 airplanes in tow, are you going to go around? No, no way. I'm not going to go around. Why would, why would you go around uh, for two items on a checklist? Because technically you're now unstable or you're not, you know, um, yeah. figured or you're not, you know, completely ready where you're supposed to be. So we went and changed that. And some of the things we did at Porter were completely radical off the wall people we went and presented our our, our results to a symposium in, uh, that Boeing was hosting in Seattle and then we went off to the Flight Safety Foundation um, annual meeting in Dubai and presented there and people thought we were crazy because we dropped our thousand foot uh, go around uh, execution point down to a hundred feet mm-hmm. and what we did essentially is allowed pilots through, through um, uh, more constrained gates as you get closer to the runway, you get to a point where now you're at 100 feet, you're either in the game or you're not. And if you're not, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. There's no, yeah, don't worry, I got it. Yeah, it's okay. Oh, it's only a couple items. Don't worry, we can figure this out, right? You allow them, the pilots, this opportunity to, to come in and, and sort themselves out. And by 100 feet, and at least a porter, if you're not there, it's a go around. There's no questions. There's no questions, ifs, ands, or buts. And our goal around compliance rate went from 3% to 85%. And it doesn't mean we're doing a lot more go-arounds. It actually means we're doing less go-arounds because we're actually giving the pilots an opportunity to actually mm-hmm. sort themselves out. And one of the other things we added in there was this really off-the-wall thing about um, uh, active communication below 500 feet. Well, you know, in, a, in, in an aircraft, we all talk about sterile flight deck below 10,000 feet, nothing about flying the airplane, nothing other than flying the airplane. Well, from 500 feet to the ground, the pilot monitoring is constantly, you know, chatting to the pilot flying, saying, you know, speed, altitude, uh, vertical speed, power, whatever that you're doing wrong. And so the pilot flying has to keep, you know, on top of it, correcting, 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 right? And there's this constant chatter that goes on. Well, we found, and this is where the psychology comes into play, that just by having that policy in place, the pilot flying would would tend to, by 500 feet, have everything nailed because they don't want to listen to a guy telling them, or a girl, telling them that they're doing things wrong, right? This is the psychology of this, and, and this is the element that you cannot find in any other OEM manual or some flight safety stuff or anything like that. It's This is the, the piece of psychology that, that, that really you know, is effective and it actually produces tangible results. All of a sudden, our um, the number of stabilized approach approaches that we were flying went from 94 or 95% to 97%, right? We all of a sudden started flying better, more accurately, more precisely. Um, and that was a part of the psychology. At Sunwing, it was completely different. Every airline we go to has a different culture, a different methodology, different philosophy. And one of the things we learned at, at, at Sunwing was, 
that there was this lack of, or there's needed an enhancement in professionalism. You know, what one of the one of the mitigations we found through the working group. Now, the working group is the employee group of regular line pilots. We had 200-hour cadets right up to the most senior captains, and they're in a room, and these are the issues. How do we resolve them? And we let them do it, and we empower them. They suddenly become your ambassadors. And uh, they said new pilot uniforms. What? New pilot uniforms. Because they had these you know, kind of old, really heavy wool, kind of uncomfortable and, quite frankly, ugly uniforms. And we went and bought them new uniforms. And those new uniforms, they all of a sudden stood up a little bit taller. They walked down that terminal. They walked down that jet bridge. They made a left turn in the aircraft and another left turn into the flight deck. And then that professionalism, they comported that right into the flight deck. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden there's an elevated level of professionalism in the flight deck. Why? Because we bought them new uniforms. It's, you know, this is the psychology that will never come out of what typically happens for a procedure, for procedure development is you have the OEM or the regulator or some SMS findings or some flight data analysis that says they're doing this and doing that. So let's put a bandaid on it and have them do this, right? It doesn't answer why they're doing it. It says what they're doing and then you try to bandaid the what. Why don't we find out why they're doing it? And that's what we do. We go and find out why. And the reason why I'm, I get so passionate about it is because this is what happened, and I've seen it be so effective at the two airlines I was at. And as I mentioned, the people that work for us are all these people that are former customers. Um, a guy by the name of Craig Drew is the former uh, senior vice president of flight operations for Southwest Airlines. You know, I, here I am, the VP of flight ops for, for a Porter or a Sunwing, you know, with 400, 450 pilots. They have 14,000 pilots at Southwest. And he came to work for us because he said, this is, the, this is it, right? This mm -hmm. is the way to do things. And now he works for us every day. I, work, I talk to him every day, and this is what we do. Mm -hmm. And it's very effective. And that's why it's very gratifying to kind of be in this environment where I'm actually using my, my head all the time, right? I'm thinking, I'm using my MBA skills to, keep, to generate business and to, to keep that, that whole side of it going. And then uh, all my knowledge that I've gained after all these years. And you're in these environments where you're really challenging yourself mentally um, up against you know some real challenges these airlines. And 100% and of the time, we are effective. And so I don't want to sound like a sales pitch. I'm just trying to tell you how and why we do what I do every day. I wake up every morning and this is what I do. No, I, I say I, I find this all fascinating because it's not just the idea, well, of as long as there's a human, there are human factors. As long as there's a human operator, there will be that human, that underlying human element. It goes beyond sort of the application of human factors, the way that it's promoted to us in aviation. It is this psycho, like it's the psychology behind our decision making and how that all plays out. Um, obviously, when you go into any given company, any given customer, you're making an individualized analysis about their operation and their needs. But given the current aviation market, what do you believe will be the biggest hurdle for Canadian aviation in the next five years with regards to human behavior and human factors this way? Um, so one of the things that we need to address on a very, very important level is the idea of pilot mental health. 
and and I and in terms of human factors, it is critical to that. In fact, this presentation or the speech I gave in Atlanta at the uh, International uh, Air Safety Symposium, which is hosted hosted the Flight Safety Foundation. And uh, so here's the thing: pre-pandemic, there was about eight to ten percent of the pilot, uh, eight to ten percent of the population identified themselves or was identified uh, clinically as um, either suffering from anxiety or depressive disorders. Right? Uh, that that number showed up to close to forty percent, and this is CDC information data, right? This is, and as uh, general population. So and now it hovers in the thirty-six, thirty-seven percent. Thirty-six. So Two out of five of your pilots for your airlines are suffering from anxiety or depression. And we also know like with anxiety or depression or both, uh, you have cognitive dysfunction. So now you have two, two out of five of your pilots are, are suffering from some form of cognitive dysfunction. Two out of those five, those two, those two pilots could actually be flying together, right? So now you have two pilots in your own flight deck that are suffering from cognitive dysfunction. It's real and it's a safety issue. And we can sit there and hide behind all of this, you know, uh, we've got it mentality or suck it up and, you know, you've got it, that's fine. Nobody wants to know, no passenger wants to know that the pilot up front is suffering from some kind of mental disorder. Nobody wants to know that. But the reality is that it's likely happening. And if you have both of them up there from some cognitive dysfunction and you have uh, some kind of emergency or malfunction or weather or both, now you're in a position where your your aircraft is just that, that less safe, right? So we need to address it. And we need to address it holistically from an industry point of view and treat uh, mental health as a, uh, as a as an illness like any other illness, but no shame associated with it. And let's eliminate the stigma of this. And I challenged everybody in that room that day, you know, 400 people, all leaders in their own uh, businesses and their own airlines and said, uh, make your airline environment where someone who is suffering from a mental health uh, issue can come and talk to you. And without any ramification, without any, attachment or any like like knowing that they're not going to be you know labeled as you know oh he's the crazy one right or she's the crazy one we have to stop that we have to stop that and this i think is a big challenge that's facing the industry uh, holistically and it and it wasn't as relevant pre-pandemic it is now yeah obviously the pandemic changed so much for so many um and the aviation industry is still sort of on the upswing coming out of the pandemic and I, we're definitely not out of the woods yet but the toll that that took on the people that make our industry the people that make it all come together uh, cannot be understated so I, I can appreciate how it has become where it was maybe not as much of an issue or at least not discussed the same way that we discuss it now it definitely is I was yeah I can't argue with the, the numbers it definitely is more prevalent now that people have had more challenges over the last couple of years and that has taken its toll yeah, and, and so one of the things is like, oh, well, the pandemic's over and that number will drop. Well, it hasn't, right? Theoretically, you know, the pandemic's been over. We've been kind of back to normal, you know, not wearing masks to the grocery store or, you know, for at least six months now, six to eight months, right? And in other parts of the world, like the United States, they <laughs> haven't been wearing masks for a long time. But um, 
but the numbers from the CDC are not coming down. They shot up literally between February and April of 2020. They went from what was a steady eight, seven, eight percent, shot up to 40 percent, and it stayed there, and it's still there. It's it's trickled down a little bit into the high 30s, but it's staying there. It's not going away. And and now we've had months of data to show that it is not going away, and it's not coming down. It's not you know it's just it, and some months it gets even worse. Right? There's in November it went up again. Why? There's a big election in the United States, and people were stressed about that. So it it's not it's not it's not coming down. So we need to address it. We need to address it. Now I'm taking us in a very different direction for our following question. But who is someone in aviation you admire, and why? Uh, I I mentioned my my uh, my mentor. Um, I won't mention him by name, but he was the original director of flight ops at Porter and was then the VP of flight ops, and then he left, and I, I took on his role. Um, I I quote him all the time. I he he said these things that were just so um, they stuck, and they were always true. Or he'd say, "I'm in the background. You are out there. You're the front. You're the front line person." You go do what you need to do, right? And when you fall, I'm going to dust you off. I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to have your back. I'm going to push you on your way again. That kind of empowerment uh, was so incredible for me. And, um, and you know, he doesn't even know, but, like, he was my mentor. And I, f I follow so much of what he does and what he said uh, because, quite frankly, he was my hero in terms of how he – managed uh, aviation and the most simple man you ever meet never like he you know at a party he would be wearing you know kind of like you know a regular suit and no, not nothing flashy nothing you know and he'd sit in the back corner and he'd be drinking a beer you know and while everyone else is like you know clicking glasses and champagne flutes and cocktails he just kind of be sitting in the background and doing this stuff and he was just so real and I've learned so much from just being real like that. And I'm not like him. I'm I'm always up at front, and I'm and I'm you know I'm always kind of in the in the in the front focus. But I always have him in my mind as to where um, where my head should be at in terms of how I comport myself and 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 behave and act and be as a leader. And I've had several mentors throughout my career who. Um, I did another speech on mentors and I said, um, mentors, you don't find your mentor, your mentors find you. Um, there's something, and I mentor a lot of people and the people that I mentor are people that have either come to me or they've heard of them or whatever, but I've taken them on. I've had a conversation with them and I said, I want to help you. And, uh, I want to help them because I see something in them that I think is really great and needs to be. Um, it need the industry needs somebody like that person to carry on the torch, and I have done this so many times with so many young young women and men, mostly women actually, because I really am focused on trying to get uh, more women into this business. As you know, I'm I'm on the board of directors of the Northern Ontario Foundation, and and it's a big part of what I do because I, I think it's critical that uh, that we do that. I have two daughters, and and. My role in life is to, to break every glass ceiling that they may encounter. And uh, whether they're in this business or not doesn't matter to me. 
I'll know that as my my job, it's my duty, quite frankly, to to be that person that that breaks those glass ceilings for them. So, um, uh, I I try to do that, and so and in some ways, it's paying it forward from my mentor onto others. He he taught me so much that I want to share some of that knowledge and and pay it forward to the next generation. I will say sometimes you can go into an event and you think here's what I'd like to do, or I'm not really sure how I want to go about this or what, if I can sort of say, what, what energy do I want to bring to this? And it can be very easy sometimes to think of that mentor, those couple of mentors that you have and think, how would they go into this? And it is sometimes it's somehow easier to think, well, if I just have to embody or be as similar as I can to that person while still being my authentic self, that's the way to go about this, this, this gala, this conference, whatever it is. So there is something about those mentors where you can just try and I just want to be like them. I'm still being myself, but I'm going to try and be them as much as I can be going into whatever I, it is. I, I used to say that to captain upgrade candidates I used to fly with and they would be kind of all over the place and their, their attitudes and the way that they talk to the cabin crew or the way they talk to people would be sometimes be good, the hot and cold, all this stuff. And I used to say to them, I said to them, I want you to sit here for a second and we'd be there on a turn or something. So I want you to sit there and think about our organization. You've been an FO here for two and a half years. Who's your favorite captain to fly with? Who's your favorite captain? Like not, doesn't have to be the best pilot, just the person that when you see that person's name on your, on your ticket there, you're like, Oh great. I get to spend a day or two days with this person. Right. I said, now take that person and kind of, emulate their thought patterns, the way that they comport themselves, the way that they react, the way they treat other people, right? And build on that, make it yourself, but ask yourself, how would that, just like what you just said, how would that person, um, you know, deal with this situation? It's gonna help you. And you would see this light go off in their heads and they'd be like, there's there's kind of feelings in the dark. What kind of captain do I want to be, right? And I said, that's the kind of captain you want to be. You know what that captain is because you've seen that person. You phone with them and go, man, when I'm in that seat, I want to be like that person. And now's your opportunity. Mm-hmm. So think about it that way. Yeah. Uh, so there was a, there was a friend of mine. She had gone from being a first officer to a captain and then found herself in a first officer role again when she went to a different company. And she said, of course, that's the idea of like you learn as a first officer, all the ways that you don't want to be a captain, you sort of get to sort of see what works for you and what really doesn't. Um, but then when you get to be a first, again, you get to be a captain, rather, you get to learn all the ways not to be a first officer again. Right. <laughs> of like, like, oh, yeah. that, that thing that I thought was super helpful, totally annoying. Yeah, yeah, I'm not totally going to carry that, that forward next don't time. Don't do yeah. that anymore. Yeah, no, yeah so that is, actually, it, it sort of goes both ways. That is a unique perspective, yeah. yeah. Now, as you noted, you are a director on the Northern Lights Aero Foundation, and in fact, we're the first man who was brought onto the Northern Lights Aero Foundation board. Why is it important to you, or rather, why do you feel it is important to have male allies at the table in places where it is sort of a woman in aviation initiative? Thanks for asking that question, because I think it's really important. Um, when we first got involved, so Lynn McMullen is someone that I've known many, many years. She's, um, she's with Northern Lights, but she was also at Seneca College, and I've known her. I've been on the Seneca College Advisory Board for, for many, many years, and she kind of brought us into, us, when I say us, uh, Porter into Northern Lights back in 2015, 2016, and I remember 
coming out of that first event, I got pulled into Bob's office, Bob Lewis's office, on the Monday morning after the event. He said that was incredible, incredible, incredible. I don't want to walk away with nothing out of that, right? I want us to do something with that energy that we had at that event. And everyone that ever goes to the Northern Lights a gala always feel like nobody walks out of that going, wow, that was a waste of time or that was boring. Or it's everyone always walks around out feeling inspired. And some people feel, you know, like this small, they're like, what have I done with my life? When these women who are 25 years old have done like a million things. This last one, this woman's got a satellite in space and she's, um, you know, the head of a biotech firm. Right. And anyway, uh, so we started Women's Tour at Porter, and myself and um, uh, another, the only other VP, female VP at Porter, started uh, Women's Tour at Porter, and we had to go to the board of directors to ask for money for funding for this. Um, and so we put a presentation together, and Deanna went up and said, such a beast, but I had like the core of it. And we're there in this boardroom uh, in some law firm in downtown Toronto. And Don Cardi, who's the chairman of the board, is sitting there at the end of the table. Don Cardi, for those that don't know, is uh, the former chairman of um, CEO of American Airlines. He was uh, the head of Can Canadian Airlines, pre-merger with Air Canada, um, held many executive roles. He was chairman of Virgin America and also the chairman of the board for Porter. And I'm just about to start speaking, and he stops me, and he goes, Pish, Pish, why, why are you up here? Excuse me. He goes, well, why are you up here giving this presentation, asking for for this women, you know, women's initiative here? And I said, Don, I and I and I said similar what I just said to you is that, you know, I, I have two daughters and and I want to make sure that they have every opportunity. And I also said something else to him. Um, I said, Don, I was just at a, a meeting in Munich of chief pilots, you know, from around the world, and I was the only brown uh, pilot. Chief pilot, didn't have gray hair, who was not 50 years old or north of 50. And I said, you guys gave me that opportunity here, and uh, I need to pay that forward, but not to other men or brown people necessarily, although that, that's part of this. It's to give women opportunities similar to what you gave me. And he said, stop right there. He goes, slip to your last slide. How much money do you want? Well, this much? He goes, okay, that's approved. Any objections? No. Next. And I've carried that with me because I think it's so important that women in this business have the opportunity. And one of the things I was most proud of is that at uh, the Women's Sort program, we ended up with 51% female managers at Porter Airlines. Unheard of. 51% unheard of. It's usually in the 15, 20, 30 percent, maybe 51. So we had more female managers at Porter than we did male managers. We had 14 percent female pilots, right, as opposed to the industry average of five or six percent. Why is that? Oh, just because we were promoting? No, no, it was because we put things in place, tangible things, maternity leave benefits, schedules that are accommodating for for women who are also pilots and mothers and that want to be home and around their, their children and um, uh, other types of benefits. We we built them uniforms that are actually look like the uniforms that a female would wear rather than wearing the dad's suit. Um, little tiny things like that. Uh, we took out pronouns out of out of our our manuals because all all the manuals say he shall and he this and he that right. 
we made them gender neutral. Uh, we made, and even just something just as simple as that makes it more welcoming for a female pilot. And, and the results were there. So that, that is why I feel so passionate about it. I think it's so important. And from a business point of view, and this is the thing that, that I, you know, my MBA helped me a bit. And, and, you know, I, I went and I checked to see what the uh, turnover rate was of, of uh, female pilots to males. Uh, and you don't want to be uh, generic or stereotypical on this, but the data showed that if a female pilot likes where they are, they're not chasing the heavy metal. They don't really care about flying the 777. They actually care about the lifestyle. So if you build them a lifestyle that, that really fits into, you know, them being not only a pilot, but also a, a, a mother, a, you know, a homemaker to some degree, you know, you're you're going to um, you're going to create an atmosphere where people women are going to want to come and then they're going to want to stay. And from a business perspective, that saves you money. <laughs> I mean, if you want to talk about it from that business perspective, it actually saves money because you have less turnover. So hiring this, this pool of, of people who are just sitting there waiting to be hired, great, hire them and they'll stay. For the most part, I mean, some will obviously leave, but not to the same level that that the men leave. So, from a business point of view, it made sense. It was saving us hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, just because we had more female pilots. Makes sense. It's a business case, and and anyone can go ahead and do their business case. You'll find the same results. So, um, that was all in the mix on that for sure. A little bit of effort, and it went a long, 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 long way. I know I've had discussions with the Black Aviation Professionals Network and the Urban Pilot Network about how can I, as a white woman, help you in your organization and your initiative without co-opting it, without becoming a distraction, because I inherently don't look like the rest of you. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest things was, well, we was them coming to me and saying, we recognize that in order for us to get ahead, we do need someone who already has their foot in the door, sort of in terms of like the greater aviation industry acceptance, I can say, sort of visibility. Mm -hmm. um, and so you being someone who is white, there is you, you do have that sort of one up on on us. But further, just make sure to mention us when there are rooms that have opportunities. That's the best sort of thing you can do. It's not so much about you being a distraction or you taking away from the initiative by being different than everyone else. Just make sure that you're promoting us and mentioning us when there are opportunities to be had. So that's a very good point, and it actually brings me back to what your original question was, which I don't think I really answered properly, which was, what is what is the benefit of having male advocates in in these roles promoting women in, in aviation? And and there's a really big strong point here. Most of the executive roles and the senior management roles in airlines are held by men. So in order, and, and, and people, natural bias of people is to hire people that look and feel like them. So when you have a male in one of those roles advocating for more women in those roles, then, then there'll be an opportunity for that woman to, it's like, it's like breaking the trend, right? The trend is men, 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 more men means more men, more men means more men, right? But then you have someone that says, no, no, no. We need women in here. And so then you bring in a woman and then that woman may be able to bring in another woman. And we start balancing this out by having a more even playing field, right? But you need a male advocate in there 
to actually champion this because right now it is controlled entirely by men. And so you need women, sorry, you need men to bring the women in. People like-minded like myself to do that, which is why, and I have been advocating for this for a long time, and that's why uh, Northern Lights asked me <laughs> to, to be on their board. And uh, what an honor it is to be there with these women, these accomplished women. I mean, Judy Cameron, who's a legend in this business, she's got me on speed dial. Like, I, I swear she's called me at least six times this week asking me for stuff, right? And and I'm happy to help her, right? Because she's got the voice. She is someone with the voice and she commands attention. And she's so humble about it. She's like, oh, I don't want to name, I don't want the scholarship to be named after me. I go, Judy, there's no one better to name it after, right? Take that, own it. You deserve it, right? I get so frustrated by women who say, oh, I don't know why I, I you know, I don't know why I got that award or I don't know why. You know, I said, you know what? If you were a man, you would say, yeah, damn right. I got that award. I was really, I deserve that. Right. This is the problem. And it drives me crazy. My daughter did this the other day and I had to stop her. She goes, well, daddy, I don't know why they asked me to be the spokesperson for this thing at the high school. And I was like, oh my God. The person that you got asked to do it with, he's a guy, right? Yeah. Do you think he's at home right now saying, I don't know why they asked me? No. He's around saying, yeah, guess what? I got asked to do this because I'm so great. Right? This is what women do to themselves. And we have to stop it. Own it. They, they deserve this. They deserve the opportunities. And, and you should stand up and be proud of it instead of, like, questioning whether, oh, you know, and and it's ingrained. That's what that's what, what young girls are taught right from the beginning. And we need to change all of that. So anyway, that's what I do. My little part is to try to change that whole way of thinking. And I'm doing it for my daughters, but I'm doing it for all the other women out there who have these opportunities. Now I know I asked you earlier about your advice for someone who is applying to their first flying job, but in terms of someone who is maybe curious about having a career in aviation, what advice would you have for them? Um, aviation can be a really cutthroat business and you don't ever sell yourself short just because you want that job. Don't do something that you don't want to do because you'll hate it and then it won't be any fun. Right? So if you like flying the Arctic and like, like the adventure of that, great. But if you hate it and every day you're going to wake up going, I can't believe I'm going out in that freezing cold to, to shovel off the snow off my King Air, then don't do it. Go do something else. Right? Because that it will kill your love for this business. I I have made luck happen, but I've been fortunate in the sense that I've every job I've loved, I've I've worked at, I've loved. Um, don't and I've seen so many people just kind of get bitter and kind of hate the business because they're doing something that they don't love to do. So don't do it. There's other opportunities, especially in this day and age. There's lots of opportunities for young people to find the role that they want that suits them, right? And not everyone is suited to fly the bush or fly in the Arctic. But then again, not everyone's suited to fly on an airline. You know, they need something more invigorating, right? Then go fly, you know, forest fire patrol or, or you know, uh, I don't know, aerial ge geographic stuff or, you know, whatever it is. There's lots of different types of opportunities out there and, and go find what, what, what works best for you. Now, in someone who's had a career of just sort of nonstop highlights, would you please share a favorite memory or any given highlight from your flying experiences so far? Oh my God. You can have more than one. We, we do allow that. I've had 
I've been all over this planet, and I'll go back to any one of those experiences. Okay, I flew the Queen. That was pretty, pretty intense, pretty exciting. Um, the Queen had, had was here on a royal visit and had to go to Kitchener, Waterloo to to go see uh, the Blackberry factory at the time, and so. Uh, Porter put a bid in and we were selected to do that. And that was a whole process of, you know, having to be assessed by Scotland Yard and not only me, but my parents and my sister and her husband and like everyone up and down the line to make sure, you know, and you're going up there and then there's a queen on board and you're greeting her and you're, you know, taught to do all the protocols and the bow and, you know, and, and, um, Boy, that was that was quite something, but um, but I would I might, you know things that pop into my head most are like the the crazy experiences you've had all over the world. We were on a world tour, and um, one of our stops was in Kathmandu, and uh, we were doing demo for Royal Nepal Airlines with the Q400. And you come into Kathmandu Airport, which is just and you've never been there before. You don't know what you know what you're expecting. It's just like. Like you didn't realize how steep an approach it is. I'm trying to slow the airplane down. I can't because it's just like coming. You know, I didn't slow it down in time, not anticipating it. Anyway, we get it on the runway. We're there. We're overnight. The next day, we're, we got the president of World Nepal Airlines uh, on board, and he comes up and he goes, "Captain," I, he goes, "Where are you going to take us today for this demo flight?" And I said, uh, "Wherever you like, sir." And he goes, oh, well, "Let's go see. Let's go see Mount Everest." I said, "Okay, let's go see Mount Everest." So I get on the radio and I said, uh, so I got the president of Royal Nepal Airlines on board and he wants to go fly to Mount Everest. I go, how do I get there? He goes, well, take off, turn right, fly down the Kathmandu Valley, and there it'll be on your left. Okay. <laughs> so I climb up to 14,000 feet and we're going down the Kathmandu Valley and there it is. And I turn in to where the valley goes towards, you know, and I know Mount Everest. I've studied it. I've read all the books, I, you know, and there it is. Lotsey face and the Hillary step and, and the white plume that's coming off the top of Everest. And it's just like the textbook, like, oh, my God, there's Mount Everest. I can see base camp yeah. uh, from where it was. But then I actually had to stop because one of the things you don't think about is that all the other mountains out there, they're all north of 20,000 feet. So you're you're at fourteen thousand feet, and all of a sudden you're getting walled in. And I'm like there doing orbits, and I have my manual SLR camera, thirty-five millimeter camera at the time, taking pictures, you know, and flying around in this tight orbit, you know, in this valley, and then back in. Um, yeah, I, I mean, when you've traveled around the world, you know, so many times that it's just there's I can think of a million. Of these these kind of things that just like really, you know, they kind of shape who you are. They're really incredible. Now, before we wrap up today, where can our listeners find you on social media? LinkedIn is where you'll find me. You'll find my contacts. You'll find my my bio and everything in there. And I'm happy to connect with anybody that that, that tries to on LinkedIn. You will be sure to have all those links in the episode description for our listeners. Piyush Gandhi, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I, I love this experience. Thank you so much. And I hope that some of the things I said will help young people and uh, people like yourself um, kind of find your way through this really crazy industry and, uh, and, 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 and have the same kind of fortune that I've had, uh, you know, that I feel blessed to be, you know, in the position I am. Thank you. 
The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searle. If you would like to learn more about the show, the Holding Short Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us. Thank you.